Again, we want to seek the Lord in prayer for his blessing and his guidance upon this presentation. Let us kneel. We're grateful, our Heavenly Father, that we do not need to rely upon our own faulty minds. But we can have access to the thoughts of heaven. We who are mere mortals, who have fallen mentality, nevertheless, thou hast promised that thou canst impart wisdom to us who are so unwise, truth to those who are naturally erroneous, and that thou can bless the words that are spoken, the words that are heard. We pray, our Heavenly Father, that these promises will be fulfilled this evening as we seek to discern how we can stand in the trials that are ahead. This we pray in thy holy name. Amen. Revelation 13, as we have seen, informs us that terrible trials are ahead. And the question is, how can we meet those trials? What are they going to be in specific terms? It's one thing to say that there's going to be death, there's going to be uh, economic boycotts. But, of course, there will be specific aspects to these matters. And there will be other tests that we must face. Revelation 13 is telling us that there are going to be Sunday laws. And I want to take a look at the divine counsel we have concerning these matters and the information so that we can better know how God expects us to stand in these times. Now remember in Prophets and Kings 1.8.6, Sister White tells us it is Satan himself who inspires Sunday laws. There's no Sunday law that is not inspired by Satan. Now, many of you may be aware that in 1962, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that Sunday laws did not violate the Constitution, the First Amendment of that Constitution. That was one of the most disgraceful decisions that has ever been handed down by the United States judiciary. Only one man of those nine voted in the negative. 
Can you imagine eight of those justices stated that Sunday laws did not violate the American Constitution, specifically, of course, the First Amendment? It is so difficult for a Seventh-day Adventist to understand such ignorance on their part. For we have just read that Sunday laws are always inspired by Satan. They claimed that Sunday laws were simply social laws to give people a rest from labour. Very, very narrow reading and a very self-serving reading. If they want the citizens of the United States to have a day of rest, let the individual choose which day he decides he wants to rest. Why specify that day which is the devil's counterfeit of the Sabbath? Because at base it is is a law which is religious. That is the reason. In volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 18, 6th volume of the Testimonies, page 18, Sister White paints the picture that we see today in the United States. As America the land of religious liberty shall unite with the papacy in forcing the conscience and compelling men to honour the false Sabbath, the people of every country on the globe will be led to follow her example. Now I mentioned this statement earlier in the presentation. Sixth volume of the Testimony, page 18. Every nation, no exception. And all will follow this foolish philosophy. It seems as if it will first <coughs> be brought in as a matter to give people rest. Last year, the Netherlands sent around a petition through all the churches <coughs> asking the citizens to plead for one day of compulsory rest in the Netherlands. They didn't say which day, but they did say it would be good if we could have one day in which we can all worship together. So which day do you think was in mind? Very clearly. You know, that petition was sent to our churches. And in some of those churches, the ministers advised the people to sign that petition. My brother was preaching in the Netherlands the very day it went around. One brother who had not attended the morning meeting but had gone to the local church heard some talk between Brother de Groot and my brother, about the matter. And he said, Oh, I just signed that this morning in church. 
And there were a few Dutch people there and they turned to him and said, why did you do that? Well, he said, the pastor said that was what we should do. Signing away our Sabbath rights, promoting, as it sounded, the mark of the beast, for that is the first step. And we see that here in every country of the world, the Sunday law will be introduced. Sister White wrote an interesting statement in the Review and Herald, March 9, 1886. When it shall have become a law that the transgression of the first day of the week shall be met with punishment, then their cup will be full. You know, I marvel at the love and the kindness of our Lord. I'm sure as we look around, we would have thought that the cup of iniquity was long since filled. But God is so patient with mankind. But when that law is fully enacted, then the cup of iniquity will be full. And then she looks at the ecumenical movement. Or she didn't use those terms. <coughs> but God showed her the ecumenical movement and its impact upon her own country. You can read it in a book that you've all read, Great Controversy, 445. When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common. What's that? The ecumenical movement, isn't it? When the leading churches of the United States, uniting upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common, shall influence the state to enforce their decrees and to sustain their institutions, then Protestant America will have formed an image to the Roman hierarchy and the infliction of civil penalties upon dissenters will inevitably result. So they are the steps. First is the ecumenical movement, uniting on points of doctrine that they hold in common. And then the attempt which is being taken up by the religious right so vigorously in America to influence legislative processes to decree their own concept of righteousness, <coughs> then will come these Sunday laws. Now, of course, the argument that I hear from many Americans favouring this issue is that, well, think of all the good legislation has done. Women's rights were legislated. And so now women have rights. And there was a lot of good in that. No one can deny it. The treatment of the blacks in America, the Afro-Americans, 
It took legislation to bring equality there. But these are not religious matters. And so they say, let us now have legislation to make the people good. That's very different, my dear brothers and sisters. They don't use those terms, but that's what they meant. Let us legislate goodness. And it needs to be put in those terms because that's precisely what they are trying to do. Only God can put goodness in the heart. Amen. You can have a million laws, but only God can change the heart. We're told also in great controversy, 589, 590, in accidents and calamities by sea and land. Have you seen the terrible tornadoes that America speeds never before recorded? Incredible disaster. Honduras, that sh those shocking tornadoes that destroyed through Dominican Republic across the Caribbean into Honduras. Many people killed. In accidents and calamities by sea and land, in great conflagrations, in fierce tornadoes and terrific hailstorms, in tempests, floods, cyclones, tidal waves, and earthquakes in every place and in a thousand forms, Satan is exercising his power. He sweeps away the ripening harvest and famine, distress follow. He imparts to the air a deadly taint and thousands perish by the pestilence. These visitations are to become more and more frequent and disasters uh, and disastrous destruction will be upon both man and beast. I believe there are even worse things ahead. And Sister White makes it perfectly plain that in the end the responsibility for these disasters will rest upon God's True Sabbath-keeping people. I emphasize true. Maybe I should use the word genuine. For not every Seventh-day Adventist is going to be bothered by all this scenario. For many will not hold to the truth. Many will rationalize. You know... I was speaking to a sister in Australia about three or four months ago and she had been speaking to one of the church elders in her church and he said, well, if death decrees and these things come, he said, I'm not going to stand for the Sabbath. Now, he's a current serving elder in the church. He said, I'll wait till it's over and then I'll come back to the Sabbath. 
Wait till it's over? What books has that man been studying? He hasn't been studying the Bible. He hasn't been studying the spirit of prophecy. But for a little while it's all right to compromise. Because then you can come back. My dear brothers and sisters, there will be no coming back. There will be no coming back whatsoever. And all these disasters will lead people to the most dangerous combination in the human existence. And that is a zealous religion without a change of heart. There's nothing more fearsome than an individual who has tremendous religious zeal but an unconverted heart. That is a recipe for persecution. A recipe for persecution. And there is to be a turn to religion because it will be seen that it is the sins that is bringing all these terrible disasters on the world. And why not legislate a good? God is upset. So it is promoted because we are not faithfully keeping Sunday. Who's seen that Marion uh, tape, videotape? A few of us have. Didn't it send shivers up your spine? Where it was stated <coughs> in that tape, that Mary predicted about exactly the same as great controversy. You know, the devil's pretty good at reading the Bible and great controversies. Not everything the devil says when it suits him is false. He said all these disasters are coming on the United States. Very similar to what we have said there. Do you remember seeing this on the tape? Mary is warning. Mary? The dead know not anything. Oh, how important the state of the dead is. And yet today there are many of our young people who are not aware of what the truth is on the state of the dead. Incredible? It surely is. In the Washington Post, September 13, 1997, it was reporting on the funeral of Mother Teresa. Today's funeral is a celebration of what Mother Teresa has done and who she's touched. Now Rangie said. You'll find out who now Rangie is in a moment. But it is also a, now listen, a celebration of her spirit going to a better place. Doesn't sound very Seventh-day Adventist, does it? It is a celebration of her spirit going to a better place. That night after Mother Teresa's death, I just wanted to pray, now Rangie said. She joined the nuns at Midnight Mass. Now this was a young American woman who had gone to work in Mother Teresa's
uh, work there in Calcutta. Join Mother Teresa. She believed that Mother Teresa's spirit had gone to a better place. And the day that Mother Teresa died, she wanted to go and attend the Mass at midnight. And she did. And then the paper goes on to say, Norangi is a Seventh-day Adventist residing at Tacoma Park. She was of Indian descent, but born in America, raised a Seventh-day Adventist, and her belief was that Mother Teresa's spirit had gone to a better place. She thought it was a good thing to go and join that midnight mass after Mother Teresa died. Six days later, on the 19th of September 1997, this appeared in an Arizona newspaper, the White Mountain Independent. Jennifer Petit said, let me just introduce, Jennifer Petit was in a serious motor car accident, young woman, and she almost died. She was in a coma for some time, but she recovered. Jennifer Petit said she saw long dead relatives and friends in heaven. She was disappointed when her friend Jamie, killed in another recent traffic accident, told her she couldn't stay. Petit was raised in the Seventh-day Adventist faith, according to the newspaper. You know, it's time for us to be emphasizing the state of the dead. You see, there are four pillars, aren't there? The sanctuary, it has been terribly attacked. The commandments of God, fearfully broken down. And the Sabbath, just made of no import whatsoever. Is the devil going to leave one of the pillars standing? And you know, before the devil can attack a pillar of the faith, there has to be a period of quiescence. Little spoken about the matter. And so a new generation rises that hasn't heard much about the truth. And then the devil can seed in his errors into our midst. We have to be certain of the state of the dead or we will be deceived. We will be deceived. There is no question about that. When this religiosity arises without conversion, there will be attendances at church. There will be, please to God, stay these plagues that are coming upon us. <coughs> All these tornadoes, these destructive natural events, so-called. And there will be no improvement. Why is God not hearing our prayer, the people will cry out? There is a group of people 
who are bringing God's displeasure upon us. For they will not come and join us in our Sabbath, our Sunday prayers for God to stay these terrible natural disasters. And the pressure will be placed upon God's people. It's because of you that God cannot stay. Because what did Mary say? She said, I want to ask the Father to stay these plagues. When I say Mary, you understand I don't believe it's Mary. This is spiritualism of the worst order. But I just use the term, I am not desecrating Christ's mother. She was a wonderful, wonderful person and I know we'll enjoy meeting her in the kingdom very much indeed. She will be honoured. But when I'm speaking, I'm speaking about this counterfeit Mary uh, but I won't use the word counterfeit all the time. You will just have to understand me. And uh, when Mar Mary said, but look, you're not keeping Sunday sacred. You're playing sport on Sunday. Catholics worrying about playing sport on Sunday? I want to tell you that in Australia, there are many Catholic brothers in the schools, who know vastly more about rugby league than they know about God. They are the best trainers of rugby football in the whole of Australia. That's why the national teams come over here full of Roman Catholic players, because the little boys up, these brothers, they are experts on rugby league or rugby union. They're not experts on God. They don't care in Australia about playing on Sunday. As long as they go along to Mass and get that over with. And as you know, in some of the churches in Australia, and probably elsewhere, there are notices. Mass also Saturday night at 7 p.m. in brackets counts for Sunday. If you're too busy doing your own pleasure on Sunday, get it over with on Saturday night and we'll count it for Sunday. But now something is changing. Mary said on that tape. And they showed American football naturally on the, on the tape. It was an American. And she said, we should not be playing sport on Sundays. And then she said, the other thing that needs to improve is all this shopping. I always forget whether the English call them mouths or malls, but it doesn't matter. I think they call it males. That's one thing where Australia hasn't followed. And, uh, and it shows all these people. But she said, that will have to stop. Catholics worrying. You see how the Sunday laws are being prepared? And then she said, you must go to Mass and to confession. You think that might be reminded of the Protestants as well as the Catholics. If you want these disasters to cease, stop all this desecration of Sunday with sport, with shopping, Sunday laws. Good reason, isn't it? The national existence is at stake. What a pressure on Seventh-day Adventists. When we become the object of the disdain of the people. Now, of course, the United States is virtually the only Western nation that executes people today. 
virtually every other Western nation has put away the death penalty, or have they? Many British people think that the death penalty has been abolished. It has not. There's still one crime, and that's the crime of treason. Now, when the nation is devastated by natural disasters, where the people turn to God and say, if only we can be united in our worship of God on this holy Sunday. I'm using their terminology. And there is a little group of Gaisleyites, if I can call them such, who refuse. Could they not be accused of high treason against their country? The whole of the national existence is at stake. There does not need to be a House of Commons vote to restore the death penalty. Now that is also true, believe it or not, in some of the states of Australia. No one's been executed there in Australia uh, since the year 1966. So 33 years since the last execution. Last year, that jail was closed and we were able to take the tours through and stand on the gallows where that man lost his life. It was an eerie feeling, an eerie feeling. But there's still the death sentence in the state of New South Wales and I think Victoria, I'm not sure about all the states, for two things. Not just treason, but also for piracy. Well, I don't think any of us will get ourselves into problems with piracy. But nevertheless, I don't know why that was retained. We will be facing serious, serious times. Will we stand? Well, let's read on a little further what God has to say. You know, in Isaiah 24, verses 4 and 5, there's an in interesting statement. Isaiah 24, looking down to this day, verse 4 and 5. And there we're told, the earth also is defiled under the inhabitants thereof, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting gospel. That is the reason why the winds of uh, strife have been just released a little at this time. That is the reason. Therefore hath the curse devoured the earth, and they that dwell therein are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and a few men left. It's going to be a terrible time. A time of national disaster in many countries. And this is going to give impetus to the Sunday laws. Great Controversy 590, we are told, <clears throat> and the great deceiver will persuade men that those who serve God are causing these evils. Do you notice that? He's going to persuade men that you and I, if faithful, and I pray we will be, are the cause of all these disasters. 
the class that have provoked the disasters, sorry, the class that have provoked the displeasure of heaven will charge all their troubles upon those whose obedience to God's commandment is a perpetual reproof to transgression. You see, all these things that says it's because you have transgressed the laws in Isaiah 24 and because you have changed the ordinance. But the people who have transgressed the law of God will be the ones who blame all this upon those who have not transgressed the law. Sister White goes on to say in that same passage of 590, it will be declared that men are offending God by violation of the Sunday Sabbath, that this sin has brought calamities that will not cease until Sunday observance shall be strictly enforced, and that those who present the claims of the fourth commandment are troublers of the people, perverting their restoration to divine favor and temporal, preventing their restoration to divine favor and temporal prosperity. Brothers and sisters, how do we stand when these totally false accusations are placed against God's people? It will be a hard time. You know, <clears throat> we've got an advantage, a wonderful advantage in the spirit of prophecy because she tells us the counsels of Satan in this matter. How is he going to deal with the very elect? How is he going to prepare them to fail? In this, the la very last test. It is a test of character, as we said earlier today. For the Sabbath is the commandment of character, of holiness. This is the test. If we do not have holy characters, the character of Christ, it is totally impossible that we will stand for the Sabbath. Only those who have developed the character of Jesus will stand at that time. So how is the devil going to try to prepare you and me to accept the mark of a beast? You and I claim that we are standing for the truth. But Satan has not given up. What is his plan? You know, Sister White was made privy to the counsels of Satan in this matter. And we have the very words of Satan. Now I hope as you listen that you'll remember that I am quoting from the spirit of prophecy, but I'm quoting Satan's words. Not God's words, but inspiration that has been given to Sister White to reveal to us what Satan has planned. Testimonies to ministers, 472, 473. Now remember, I must emphasize this, 
It is the truth of God because Sister White is writing it. But she is revealing to us the error of Satan, what he is planning, his scheme to have faithful Seventh-day Adventists accept the mark of the beast. And my dear brothers and sisters, that plan is working absolutely remarkably well in God's church today. Listen. I will influence the popular ministers. Now this is to Seventh-day Adventist ministers. This is not talking about the popular church. This is ministers who are popular within the Seventh-day Adventist church. I will influence the popular ministers to turn the attention of their hearers from the commandments of God. Already that has been fulfilled. And countless thousands of Seventh-day Adventists have been turned from the commandments of God. Satan goes on to say, that which the scriptures declare to be a perfect law of liberty shall be represented as a yoke of bondage. I'm glad we've had young people here to know just what the devil has planned. All the deterioration we have seen concerning the commandments of God in our church is designed, not of course by God, but designed by Satan to prepare Seventh-day Adventists to accept the mark of the beast. Whenever you hear a pastor promoting such soul-destroying error, he is an agent of Satan, no matter how popular he is. And he is standing in the sacred pulpit brazenly provoking God's people to be prepared to accept the mark of the beast. Let us go on. The people accept their minister's explanation of Scripture. We ought to accept God's explanation of Scripture. Wouldn't that be a little better? But Satan knows what is happening in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Ministers stand up and with the vilest words, they destroy the truth of God and people say, thank you, Pastor, for that wonderful message as they leave the church. You know, I had a very interesting experience. This is now... 1977. It was when the Dr. Des Ford issue was very, very strong in Australia. And a pastor came to the church where I was an elder. He, like myself, had been a fellow college student with Dr. Ford, but he had not accepted Ford's <coughs> concepts. And he preached a wonderful sermon on righteousness by faith. It was the old Adventist message. I was one of the elders up the front at the time and I stood by him as the brothers and sisters came out of that church, about 250 of them. Oh, thank you, Pastor. I was really uplifted by that man. I was feeling wonderful. Now, I saw three or four who didn't bother to shake his hand because they did not accept. But the vast majority of them were thrilled with his message. And it was a wonderful message. And it was the truth of God. The next Sabbath, 
a young pastor came, very glib, who within the year was to be dismissed for his adultery with one of the elders' wives, not of that church but of another, who was preaching around Victorian conference that David was a saved man at the moment of his sins. You preach that and you'll start to practice it, and he did. And my dear brothers and sisters, he preached with some degree of eloquence, I might say, a message that was diametrically opposed to what Pastor Watts had preached the previous Sabbath. I was appalled. I was not up the front. But I stood by as the people filed out, the ones who had been so appreciative the previous Sabbath. Thank you, Pastor. I was uplifted by that message. God bless you, my dear brothers and sisters. They did not know the difference between God's precious truth and the devil's damnable errors. Tragic. Tragic. But you know, Pastor Watts did a wonderful job, but he lacked one thing. He did not warn of the error. Brothers and sisters, do not think by sweet talking of the truth you are doing the full will of God. We have to earnestly and sincerely warn of the error to God's people. If he had, they may have been alert. They may have been alert when they heard that error the next week. The devil is seeding in these ideas because the people, they'll listen to the pastor, he's speaking. And if the pastor's in error, they'll still accept it as truth because it comes from the pastor. And then it states, or Satan states, the people accept their minister's explanation of Scripture and do not investigate for themselves. <coughs> They're too busy watching the television or going out to the opera. And much worse, to have time to study these matters for themselves. They're too busy. Therefore, by working through the minister's eye, remember this is Satan, I can control the people according to my will. First plan. Brothers and sisters, don't study. Just listen to the minister. In one of the biggest churches, the Capitol Memorial Church, in Washington, D.C., two years ago, the pastor of that church, very well known to most of us here, Pastor Jack Sequeira, stood up and he said to that large church, hundreds of people there, I realize that you are a busy people. You know, lots of professionals in that church, and professionals can be very busy, I know. Lots of business people, and I know business people, can be very, very busy. And he said, I know 
you don't have a lot of time to study the Bible. So what I'm going to do is every week I'm going to study the Bible and I'll bring my research and I will give it to you. A recipe for preparation for the mark of the beast. The amens in that church nearly brought the roof down. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The devil has judged it right. Remember, Satan is speaking again. I'm on page 473. Now listen, what else he goes on to do. The Sabbath which I have set up, what day is that? He's meaning Sunday. The Sabbath, it's a very improper term, but he means Sunday. The Sabbath which I have set up shall be enforced by laws the most severe and exacting. But, and this is where we are today, but, even the devil has a few buts, but before proceeding to extreme measures, we must exert all our wisdom and subtlety to deceive and ensnare those who honour the true Sabbath. So we're not going to bring in all these opinions. You people and I am not facing the death penalty. We're not facing economic boycott. But don't think the devil isn't in a stage of his planning. He is in the stage of subtlety, of deceit. I will exert, we must exert all our wisdom and subtlety to deceive and ensnare those who honour the true Sabbath. We can separate many from Christ. And he has three recipes. And all how important this is. By number one, worldliness. Worldliness. You know, I spoke about my own worldliness uh, in the matter of sport. I hope that we don't have people who've gone home to this meeting so they can see what happened at Wimbledon this morning. <laughs> Don't ask me who, I, who was praying. There was a day when I could tell you all the Wimbledon champions from the Second World War on. Don't ask me today. Praise the Lord. He's blotted it out of my mind and I don't want to remember them anyway. Except as people who need the truth of God, of course. That's a different matter. We might laugh, but you would be shocked at the number of Adventists at home who wouldn't dare look at any sporting fixture on Sabbath. They just leave their VCR on, and <laughs> after the Sabbath hours, then they have it there to review. They let the television break the Sabbath for them. You, see. <laughs> you might laugh, but only in 1996, I was in the Burnt Mill Church in... Uh, Maryland and I went to the Sabbath school class and the Sabbath school teacher that that that, fr that um, Friday night there had been the opening of the Atlantic Olympic Games and that teacher said well what a pity the opening was all well, I wished I'd have lived on the west coast because they're three hours behind and it was before the Sabbath on the on the west coast but but it was on Sabbath here 
But he said, of course, I did put my uh, VCR on and I've been able to look at it since, you see. That was a Sabbath school teacher. The Olympics were so important, aren't they? I mean, you can imagine that, uh, you know, a gold medal, that's, is that an entry into heaven? To walk up to the judgment bar of God with an Olympic gold medal? Of course not. No crown of life for gold medals. Worldliness, dress, adornment, the theatre, the opera, all these things are becoming common with Seventh-day Adventists. Feasts, going out, drinking wine, all these matters to the point where the ministry magazine had to have an article on Seventh-day Adventist alcoholics. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Tragic. You know, no wonder we need to be weeping between the porch and the altar. No wonder we should be disturbed by the abominations, sighing and crying. Therefore, by working through the ministers, I control, can control the people through my will. And then we come back to these three issues. Worldliness, lust is the second one. The devil's hit a winner there. A winner. You know, purity of life is very rare in the Seventh-day Adventist church today. Very rare. Premarital sexual relations. When you have a chaplet at La Sierra University, Adventist University, writing a book sold in ABCs and telling young people that the limits of their premarital sexual activity are those upon which both agree. We are in serious trouble with lust. But that is not confined to unmarried people. The tragedy of married people who are committing the sin of adultery today and the sin of homosexuality today. I had a relative, not a blood relative, but a relative by marriage. And that young man was a homosexual. We loved him very much. And he spoke to me one day. He said, Uncle Russell, God understands, doesn't he? I said, he does. He understands how to deliver you from that sin. Amen. But he said, don't you believe, he said to me, that it is an hereditary problem. I wasn't as definite as that. I said, it matters not. We have many cultivated, uh, inherited tendencies to evil. Sister White speaks about that. So why couldn't homosexuality be one of those? Immorality can be one. Bad temper can be one. You know, we've got all these inherited tendencies to evil. 
But God has promised to give us victory over every cultivated and inherited tendency to evil. I serve a God who is able to save us against anything, whether it be in our genes or whether we've learnt it in our life experience. Any sin. He didn't like Uncle Russ's comments, although I was very kind to him. And I said, look, look at the people in Corinth. Go back to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Some of those were homosexuals, because Christ, uh, Paul says so. And such were some of you. But now ye are washed, ye are cleansed. I said, God offers you salvation to overcome that temptation. He went to a man who at that time, New Zealander, was the president of Avondale College, formerly a professor of New Testament in the, at Andrews University. That man gave him a better answer than Uncle Russ. He understood. He gave him hope in his sin, not hope out of his sin. It's quite different. A few years later, I tell you, we love that young man. 29 years of age, I had to take part in his funeral from AIDS. Who was the loving? What was the loving advice? Yes, you can give all this loving advice. But in the end, of course, that loving advice, so-called, led to his untimely death. We've got to be so careful because the devil has brought in worldliness and lust of every kind. And I'm not letting heterosexual lust or even other forms of lust to pass. And the third one is pride. The old ego is pretty strong. Even in people who are shy and backwards. Often that's because they don't want, they fear their ego is going to be, to be pierced. We've all got it. It's all the struggle with self. And the devil knows our weaknesses, worldliness, lust, and pride. And these are his words. Revealed to us. None of us could possibly have known the counsels of Satan unless God had revealed it to his servants. We know exactly what his plan is. And it is succeeding and succeeding at an enormous rate and with a massive success, preparing people to receive the mark of the beast. But of course, there will be those who stand through those preparatory tests. But Satan goes on to say, when the death decree shall be made the penalty for violating our Sabbath, his Sabbath, that is, of course. Then many 
who now rank, are ranked with commandment keepers will come over to our side. Brothers and sisters, how will we stand? When the test comes, many will stand to that point. But the test is coming. So severe. How will we stand? Well, let us just conclude by looking at how we can stand. Ninth volume of the Testimonies, 232. Sorry, 236. It is not the will of God that your lives should be carelessly sacrificed. What is Sister White speaking of there? She is speaking of what should we do when first the Sunday laws are enacted. And she gives some advice. You know, if I did not have that advice, I would probably say, well, I'm going to still work on Sunday. Do work. I'm not going to cave in lest I receive the mark of the beast. But that is not the advice of God. In 232, we are advised when the people were moved by a power from beneath to enforce Sunday observance, Seventh-day Adventists were to show their wisdom by refraining from their ordinary work. In other words, don't be provocative. Don't go out in the garden. Don't get out the uh, axe and start chopping the wood. We are to refrain. You know, I've got to say, that, that goes against my grain. Oh, I guess I'm just one of those sort of people. But when it's God's advice, I must accept it. I must accept it. That is God's advice. Because as I just read, he doesn't want people unnecessarily sacrificed. He doesn't want us to go forward. But don't take that so far that you yield on everything, on what is truth. She says that we should refrain from our ordinary work on that day, devoting it to missionary effort. Listen, don't just stay home and, uh, you know, just do nothing. This is the time. You know that the end is short. People have to be warned. There's going to be a time when these tests will not lead to our death, where we will have the opportunity to go from door to door, witnessing, telling people what these laws mean. Let's take that opportunity. Devoting it to missionary effort. When we devote Sunday to missionary work, this will be, the whip will be taken out of the hands of the arbitrary zealots who would be well pleased to humiliate Seventh-day Adventists. Will. But of course, the time is going to be coming when it will go beyond Sunday laws, where we will be forced, or the effort will be made, for us to violate the law of God, to break the Sabbath, Perhaps to participate in the blasphemy of the mass. Then we must stand. The consequences be what they may. But who will stand? 
Evangelism 234-235. But when the decree shall go forth enforcing the counterfeit Sabbath and the loud cry of the third angel shall warn men against the worship of the beast and his image, the line will be clearly drawn between the false and the true. Then those who still continue in transgression will receive the mark of the beast. So what's the difference? What is going to make the difference? The difference is the character of Christ. For we cannot claim the character of Christ when we continue in transgression. And if God speaks to your heart about some sin in your life, or if you discover a new sin in your life, are we going to let that stand in place of the character of Jesus? For there are only two characters. There's no halfway character or three-quarter character. We either have the character of Christ or the character of the devil. That's all we have. And let's be honest, all of us have been possessed by the character of the devil. For every sinner has that character. How shall we stand? We can only stand with all sins forgiven, confessed, confessed, forgiven, and forsaken. We can only stand holding on to God's hand moment by moment. It's all we can do. We will stand. The weakest of us here and I suppose we'd all come last in the strength issue. But we're not looking at ourselves. We're looking at the strength of our Lord. He is the one who can keep us from falling. He is the one who can impart the character of Jesus. And only then will we be able to stand. We may stand in a sense, many, many tests, even with faulty characters. But eventually, the moment is going to come where sin harbored in the life, unconfessed, unforsaken, will mean that we will lose the race. I'm speaking of that race that Paul speaks of. This is serious times. 1999 is, in one sense, no special year, I suppose, although we've still got nearly six months to know just how special it may be. Maybe the year 2000 is no special year. I don't know. I'm not a prophet. But one year, very, very shortly, is going to usher in these tests. We have gone through the period of subtlety. That's on right now. Some have yielded to that subtlety of worldliness, lust and pride. But soon the devil will be finished with that test. He'll have extracted everyone he can by his subtle method. And then he turns to the harshest measures he can bring against the faithful. 
then will the test distinguish those whose characters are the characters of Jesus and those who have the character that is faulted because they refuse to yield every aspect of their lives to Jesus. You know, this, for me, is a very solemn message because, like all of us, we all struggle. It is a struggle. But I want to yield my life to Christ more than anything else. It doesn't help to read early writings 282 and find, discover there that a minister who is disobedient to God receives tenfold punishment in the judgment. I couldn't tolerate one-fold punishment, my dear brothers and sisters, and neither could you. But tenfold. I don't know what that means... The punishment lasts ten times longer or it's ten times more severe in intensity. But I believe what the servant of the Lord has said. And in any case, we love Jesus. We want to be with him. We want to thank him. He wants us. You know, we have a God a mediator who sits on the mercy seat. Let's not forget that the judgment seat is the mercy seat. He wants more than anything else to extend mercy to you and to me. And if we only yield ourselves a day at a time and then moment by moment in that day, he will extend mercy to every one of us. Because that is his wish. That is his overwhelming desire. But if we stubbornly say in our hearts, well, I'll wait another little while and then I'll get that sin out of my life. You know, procrastination is absolutely a masterpiece of the devil. There are going to be lots of people lost in the kingdom of heaven who intended to gain victory over every sin. And they knew they would, you know. A little further down, and while they're in the middle of this lack of decision, their day of mercy closes. These are solemn times. It is time to put every sin out of our lives. We are in the anti-typical day of atonement. We are. And I pray God that in this time of testing, mild compared with that which is ahead, but nevertheless, it is a testing time that each one of us will be ready. And I'm just praying for God's people. I know that each one of us here has a burden one for the other that we individually and then as a group will share the joys of heaven together. What a blessing that will be. We can't even contemplate those blessings. They are beyond our imagination. But I know we want it. And we want it more than anything else. Brothers and sisters, let us in this day as this 
Sabbath passes to covenant with God that we will stand, that we will ask him to give us his character, to take out all these wretched flaws in our personalities that we may have the character of Jesus. God bless you all to that end. Amen.